Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. Do you look around your church and only see people who look just like you? Tim Tang is the director of the Tyndale Intercultural Ministry Center in Toronto. The Tim Center helps churches, ministries, and individuals grow in their intercultural abilities. I'm Karen Stiller. Tim joined me and my colleague Bill Fladeris to talk about what intercultural church looks like today and how we can move more purposefully in that direction. So, Tim, please tell us and our listeners about Tyndale Intercultural Ministries Center in Toronto. What do you do and why do you do it? Sure. So, short form is the Tim Center, and I always try to get it out of the way that it's not named after me, but um, <laughs> it's been around way before I was there. As you explained, the Tyndale Intercultural Ministry Center, uh, that's the full name. It's been around since 90, 1999. Its original intention really you know, started by a few missions professors at the seminary really wanting to create safe space to talk about global missions in Canada. And you know, that safe space idea really came that came from the idea that seminaries, academia, they weren't talking in a safe way with the parachurch mission organizations. Mission organizations, you know, weren't talking very safely, it seemed like, with churches. You know, everyone felt like they were poaching from one another or trying to, you know, their agenda was kind of like, okay, well, are they just trying to get to know me because they want money or they want my people or you know, is there something better that we can create in terms of safety? So really, the original intention was they wanted to call it the Intercultural Ministry Center. They didn't even want Tyndale as an umbrella. But, you know, I guess, long story short, you know, they it, having that umbrella, having some of that brand name recognition has been helpful. So yeah, global missions has been the primary conversation. But in the last 12 years, I guess, you know, after about 10 years of, of talking and doing that, creating events, creating symposiums and discussion, really was the awareness that God has brought the nations to places like Toronto and Canada, right? So not just the big cities, but all over our country where the nations are here. And what what does that mean? So the last 10 years, I guess I'd say, it's been very much less about simply talking about going overseas for missions, but also, you know, places like Canada where we're, we're receiving, we're receiving missionaries from South Korea, the Philippines, church planters who are coming here wanting to plant churches. And so how do we not just be a sending church, but a, a receiving church? And so that was our journey. But as we continue to morph, it's just just realizing, well, what's the real niche that we have? It's equipping people around intercultural competency, which if you boil it down even more, it's understanding the other, understanding anyone else who is other than you or other than what you know, other than your community. And I think that's been a huge deal of really this last two years of equipping. And, and yeah, whether it's race or whether it's reaching over to another community to to bring the gospel it's or, or reaching together um, to work together for the gospel, that's been so much of our, of our work. Yeah, that's so interesting to me that even the idea of missionaries coming, but it's also Christians coming, right, from other countries. And there was a stat on your website that really caught my attention. By 2031, nearly 46% of Canadians 15 and over will be a first-generation immigrant. So obviously, that's changing the face of the Canadian church, becoming more diverse, hopefully. I'd love to hear what an interculturally competent person looks like. Well, I'll touch on the first comment you had about it's not just people from other countries, but, you know, many of them 
are Christians, right? And, yes. you know, there is this, this wake-up call that we as the Canadian church need to have sometimes that, you know, we don't have the monopoly on Christianity. Like, the fastest rising movements are in the global south or in the majority world in Africa and other continents. And so there's a huge momentum and movement of Christianity, not just new conversions, but the church has been there for centuries, right? And so if you even just go along that line of the fact that, well, we're not just reaching across the table to different people because we want to tell them about Jesus. They already know about Jesus. Actually, their church might have, you know, more history than most of our churches if we if we if we link back a little bit and and so well what does it mean for them to express um a love and a, a an obedience in following jesus that may be different than ours so an interculturally competent person really for us is somebody who you know number one suspends judgment you know number one just you know realizes that hey something's different here but we both follow jesus we both you know have some things in common but Every now and then something's different. And instead of simply judging that difference, like saying it's good or bad, um, you know, you suspend judgment, try to ask better questions, learn to ask, hey, what else may be going on here that I don't really understand? Um, and then from there, hey, how could that learning across difference actually make us better? So, you know, some of the some some of the reasons why I love intercultural competency in terms of training is, you know, having a little bit of a pastoral hat on. It's a discipleship journey. You know, how do we how do we just grow better as ourselves? And sometimes the best way to know and see ourselves and to grow is to step outside of ourselves. And it's in the perspective and the eyes of someone else, you know, giving us feedback. We talk about mentorship, you know, that mentorship being one of the huge ways of seeing and reflecting back, hey, what is somebody who we trust see that maybe we're not seeing? That makes me think of in Canada, we have... The indigenous Christian leaders as well that have really brought a lot of wisdom to that kind of discussion of helping us to see what's cultural versus what's core to being a Christian, right? And historically, I think that's been a really helpful gift that I've seen, at least from that community. Yeah, great comment about, you know, and especially in Canada, yeah, the, the, the First Nations indigenous conversation, the ongoing conversation, you know, is, is exactly that. I mean, how much more how much can we actually glean instead of just seeing um, the indigenous community as people we need to convert, you know, and teach them English so that they can sing our Hillsong songs because that's the only way to worship God. Um, nothing against Hillsong. Some lovely songs there. However, you know, I mean, it, not just language, but beyond language, customs and values that actually are on some level actually much more Eastern and probably the way Jesus practiced his own walk on many levels, because Jesus came from an Eastern community versus a, a Western ideological framework. I think that is so helpful to think that way. Like right away, I think, why are we so nervous? Why is, I don't even know the right words to use dominant culture, church, so nervous about embracing or experimenting or trying practices that don't originate from our own culture, maybe. I'll throw a question back at you because I don't, I think that was more of a statement, right? <laughs> I mean, where, oh, where do you see, <laughs> where, where, where do you see that nervousness the most, I guess? Is it like on a yeah. Sunday morning? Like where, where do you see that nervousness happen? I think that I see that hesitancy specifically around First Nations practices to do with Christian worship. 
where we might have questions around, well, what does this mean in your culture and does this fit within a church service? And historically, there were a lot of missionaries who had a much more conservative position about that to say anything that's not familiar worship style is even demonic or whatever, right? Whereas now a lot of that is being reassessed and we, and people are looking for, like you said, Karen, what does it mean in that culture, right? Just because it's foreign or different or unusual to us doesn't mean it's necessarily condemned right away, right? Because we're looking at it with European glasses, so to speak, right? Or whatever. As an Anglican Christian, which I am, I have even felt that within denominations, between denominations, this sort of suspicion or wariness about how we do worship differently than each other, where we always think we have the right way or the um, you know, the most Christ-like way. Like you sort of facetiously mentioned Hillsong uh, worship songs, that, that that's worship, not an ancient hymn. And then, um, you know, I've had a First Nations Christian friend said, say to me, well, why is that ancient hymn the only way to worship? So I don't know. It's like we don't know what we don't know, and we don't know the questions we're not asking. I think that's a great analogy because, you know, for any of us who have been Christians for a while or, you know, and depends on what we were a part of. But I mean, you know, music was very much a part of my my younger days, well, even now, um, but I remember, you know, the late nineties or mid nineties, maybe it's still going on the worship wars, you know, where there was this, this whole, okay, is it a hymn, you know, or it needs to be blended worship or are drums really allowed. And like, I remember growing up and some missionaries would come and speak, you know, whether on a Sunday or, and they would talk about drums as tribal pagan music and any kind of drums is, you know, any kind of drumming, which really, I mean, in, from a musicology lens, I mean, so I ended up doing a lot more music in, in high school and stuff like that. And rhythm and drums is so inherent to some cultures. And so now you've just written off an entire culture without even knowing it. But you're you're right, Karen, like we're we're so hesitant, even denominationally. Oh, well, is that OK? Am I allowed to take communion? I mean, my church always did communion like this. And you want me to dip my bread into the juice? What? Like, you know, what's that? You know, and so we're so afraid of doing slightly different variations of things. You know, which, yeah, this, so, I mean, not to be a big, I mean, I, I really love Tyndale, um, but what I really, really appreciated about Tyndale, I'm not trying to just promote Tyndale, was that, I mean, they were trans-denominational when I was there as a student, and they still are. Um, so, you know, one week it would be, you know, the Pentecostals leading chapel, and the next week the Lutherans would, and, you know, it'd be some students, and they, for, they would forget to ask permission to serve wine, but whatever, you know, and so, and then the next week it'd be the Anglicans leading, and so really it was, it was such a neat experience to say, oh, there's different ways, um, not different roads to God, but different nuances in terms of how we express liturgy, worship, prayer, contemplation. And none of us have cornered the one perfect method of connecting with God. God's created us with so much uniqueness. There's also the history too, right? Like I've been reading a church history book recently. And if you think about the time of the Reformation, you have these different streams of Christianity that anathematized each other and said, you know, those other people, they baptize infants or they baptize adults. Like that's totally wrong. So some of that discomfort that you're talking about, Karen, I think we just inherited that. Yeah. And, and then I would say, you know, fast forward that now back to our conversation about First Nations and Indigenous. I mean, there's more and more solid literature now about Jesus and John Wayne. That's, you know, that's a great book, you know, just talking yes. about how we've Americanized, not just Americanized, but Westernized 
the Christian identity and the faith identity and the John Wayne idea of conquering the pagan First Nation people. It's so embedded in our culture, in media, in movies. You think about all the films that we grew up watching. You know, I remember, and I remember listening to an indigenous leader talk about growing up and seeing other children play cowboys and Indians. And literally every child on the Indian reserve would want to be the cowboy because they were convinced that the Indian is bad, right? And the the first the indigenous person is and they they literally were that person. And so, you know, what kind of self-hate have we promoted in that water that we all swim in, I guess? That's such an important question. You mentioned, Tim, you used the phrase, it's a discipleship journey. And uh, how do we grow better as ourselves? And I think that must be an important part of the work you do. And I did a very small version of your training where I did these intercultural surveys to get to know where I was. And I was um, like, I thought I was more open-minded. And so it was actually very helpful to see my own blind spots. So how important is that? How can we lean into that? I think who, who really woke me up to that idea of it being a discipleship idea what was, was Leslie Newbegin. He, as a missionary, realized that, you know, sure, there was a goal of bringing the gospel to the places that he was, you know, God was sending him and being. But then he realized in a lot of his writings was that, you know what, after about the second or third generation of Christian in that host country that he was in, now all of a sudden that second or third generation has a lot more discernment of looking back at the culture that was wrapped in the Christianity that was wrapped in a culture that he brought as a missionary. Um, And he even writes, I remember one of his quotes, and the missionary, he says, so speaking of himself, and the missionary, if he is at all awake, (laughs) you know what he's, if he's at all awake, he realizes that he can't see what the foreigner, the foreigner can see. And that's what I'm seeing even now, myself being a second generation immigrant. I mean, I realize that as the second and third generations, not that we're better than the first generation at all, but I think we've had more privilege and opportunity to now reflect on, well, how Chinese am I? And how Canadian am I? And now, you know, starting to reflect on those values that have come out of us and what are the values that I'm still adopting. So, you know, Karen, you're talking about some of the awareness that you were reflecting on. And and so much of our training when we've been doing it is reminding people that no matter no matter who you are, you've grown up in some sort of culture. Often we hear people say, no, I don't have a culture. It's like, well, you do. You're, you know, and you dig a little deeper, you build some, you know, a relationship. And then they realize, oh, yeah, I'm very Dutch. And you're like, yes, you are very Dutch. And there's nothing <laughs> wrong with being Dutch, but it's very different than being East Asian. It's very different than being a Francophone. It's very different. And so there's a lot of similarities, which are great, but those differences aren't what should be dividing us is the differences that we should be leaning into and actually bring us stronger together, I guess. It's kind of like the the potluck idea a little bit, right? Like we all have culture that we can bring together and it can get kind of messy, but it can also be gloriously diverse and, and enjoyable. But the discernment, we need to help each other discern, I guess, and we need to be self-aware a little bit. When leaders are going through the training that you do, like, and I'm thinking now of a church pastor or a ministry leader, how can they expect to change or have been changed by the end of it? Like, how will they be better at this? What seems like really important work? 
Well, I mean, number one, I mean, kind of even even as you illustrated, so much of what we hope to achieve is at least initially some humility, right? For for everybody. And humility is how can how can anyone not like humility from a, from a Christian discipleship point of view, right? I mean, we all could use a little bit more humility. And that's what I find most prevalent for a lot of people when we do training and do some assessments. People are realizing they're not as progressive as they thought they were or not as woke as they perhaps thought they were. And that and that's a great thing to be humbled, right? You know, we're so convinced that we have control over our, our entire lives and everything and we know everything, but we don't. That humility, number one, I think, is a great posture to at least put us all in that learning posture. Any kind of leadership development we talk about, staying in that learning posture. You know, it's not that you have to know everything, but are you even eager to learn? And so that learning posture puts them in that place of not just learning posture towards other people, but toward themselves and re-examine to know that, you know, sure, even if I have an undergraduate degree, graduate degree, you know, even if you have a postgraduate degree, great. Well, there's more learning actually for anybody who has a a postgraduate degree, they realize, well, I know a lot of things about one thing. (laughs) And so realizing that there's so much more for us and all of us to know and learn. And so uh, how much more different it is for us to learn about other people who are ever changing and ever growing. And so as we dynamically grow in Christ, others will grow. And so how do we learn from that and and synergize, I guess, off other people? I'm thinking about compassion for other people's pain that maybe that they have that's related to their culture and how it's very easy for us to say, well, we just need to be mature Christians, right? And we need to get over whatever and grow in this way. And that humility that you're talking about, part of that is to maybe not make that conclusion so quickly Mm -hmm. and say, you know, we're all on this journey of discipleship and growth, and we all have good and bad parts of our heritage that we're trying to come to terms with. So just because my heritage isn't so problematic in such and such an area, whereas maybe it is for you. That's that humility to look at those other people coming from a different tradition or whatever and saying, you know, I'm going to try to understand what that is that you're also working through. That can be a beautiful thing too, I think. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but. I, th- I think so. As I was, I was hearing you talk, Bill, I mean, I was hearing compassion, empathy, understanding other people's traditions, but then even as I'm thinking about just really realizing how different other people's experiences are and not even just individually, but generationally. And and like, I didn't, I didn't really fully realize this, but you know, eventually I asked more questions of my father and he told me his journey of coming to Canada. And, you know, literally in the early fifties at the point of graduation, you know, came, came as an international student going to immigration office and saying, I'd like to apply for my permanent residency. What do I need to do? And the, the immigration officer literally looking across the table and say, well, I can't do that. Don't you know Chinese people are unwelcomed here? That's right. wow. And that's said to his face. I didn't realize that story, but then how that plays out for me is I've seen him, even in how he raised me, as almost a goal of how do we assimilate to become Canadian? Sending me to a private school, encouraging me to go along with the crowd. If if everyone at school does this, you go you go do it too. There's this generational thing that plays out, you know. And take that analogy to another experience. Our pastor at our church is Jamaican Canadian, and you know he tells stories of walking home from church on a Sunday and being stopped by police and saying, 
you don't look like you live around here. And he's like, what do you mean? I don't look like I live around here. Right. And that's a very different experience that I don't have. And so how do we become empathetic to, you know what, people's journeys are different. And sure, he wasn't thrown in jail or whatever. But if it happens over and over again, a person's family experience and well then what does he say to his children how does he how does he equip and have conversations with his children that are very different than others and so you know how do we just lean into that yeah people's traditions and experiences are so profoundly different and often they're close to unacknowledged trauma and that underlies sometimes so much of our our different experiences I think that is uh, so interesting in that story of your father and how that shaped you Tim growing up I don't think we can talk about this without talking for a moment or two, at least, about how the church can grapple with racism in Canada and how we can listen better and behave better. And maybe touching on the evangelical church in particular, and I bring that up just because that's sort of our readership with Faith Today, for example. And this is a very small example, but we did a racism cover story last year where we just asked people to share their stories, actually and hoped to provide space and be listeners. And and we did, uh, I remember one pastor was concerned that we were going liberal. You know? And Bill, you had a wonderful chat with him, I think, and it was all fine in the end, and everybody was on the same page. Could you respond to that, Tim? Like, I think there's this sort of shutdown mode we go into, and I'm not sure what that's all about. I mean, I feel like I want to ask you guys what you thought it was all about. <laughs> well, I can, I can give you, I can give you a quick comment. I, I think it's partly yeah. a question of um, priorities, right? And so, as a pastor, you say, "I have all these priorities in the people that I'm trying to pastor," and racism, you know, for me, that's a lower priority than you know. We really need to be concerned with other gospel-centric issues, right? I think that was kind of his, his, his fear was a little bit like that, that our priorities are getting a little bit messed up because we're adopting the priorities of the world around us and really we need to take our priorities from scripture. And so we had a good conversation about that. And I don't know if that helps, but that, that's what I kind of thought it was about. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. And I think that becomes, I mean, and you don't hear that until you have a conversation, which is great that you did, right? And um, that you're able to, you know, maneuver the conversation away from just whether or not you were going left or not or going right. Right. <laughs> like when I, when I, when I think I hear, hear that story, Karen, I, I, I usually just think of as well, oftentimes the church's inability sometimes to just focus on the polarities. Like people will say, well, if you go liberal, then you're like the worst liberal I know or can imagine in my head. Or, you know, some people don't want to be called conservative because they'll imagine the worst conservative that they can imagine in their head um, or that they've read about. And so, um, and, that, and that's where I feel like this conversation sometimes with racism is as well. Like people, people will say, well, I'm surely not a racist because in their head, how they're imagining a racist is like the worst, you know, KKK, you know, going around, you know, lynching people kind of imagery and, and they know that that's wrong. And so they surely I'm not that and we have nothing to do with that. So why should we even talk about that? Or I, I do feel like, say, in this in this last year, you know, when when George Floyd erupted in the media and there's a huge conversation around that, I, I think even for that, I mean, it's it's such a nuanced conversation in Canada because Canada is not the same as the United States. And so when churches in Canada were faced to talk about it, you know, some churches were like, I don't, 
I don't get it. I don't get because they, yeah, they, they, they don't get it because Canada is different, you know? So <clears throat> I, I, I love that you had, you know, Lennon Anderson talk, you know, cause, cause the Nova Scotian black experience is very, very unique, but that experience of the church on the East coast is very different than the West coast. Right. And it's, I'm not saying that there are, there's not a black community in BC, but it's not the same history. <laughs> it's not the same experience as Nova Scotian black. And so there is that nuance of, okay, where I am, I don't see what I'm seeing in the media and this big outrage. I did listen to some of the podcasts that you you guys had, and I, I love how Joel even nuanced it to, well, you know, in Canada, this is my experience as, as a Black Canadian. You know, how do we also talk about the Indigenous story? Because that is a, that is a Canadian story, right? When we talk about the school closures, you know, in 1996 or... Um, indigenous children still in the foster care system today. So that's, that's, that's a today issue, not a hundred years ago issue. And so then that becomes, okay, well, how does that, how do we contextualize that to um, missing an indigenous woman in Canada, which is today. And we need to face that because that's a Canadian conversation. Yeah. I really resonate with that. Uh, the idea of, thinking of the extreme and then we distance ourselves from it because of course we don't want to, and we're not, most of us aren't like that. And, but we miss, I mean, it's ironic because our whole faith or a cornerstone theological piece of our faith is our depravity <laughs> and our acknowledgement of our depravity. And so to pretend that we would never entertain those thoughts, you know, to any extent is not true. And until we can, I think, really face the truth of our own depravity and brokenness and our need for God, and we find that in the church, then we're really, um, we're shortchanging ourselves and our fellow Canadians. I was just thinking about loving our neighbor too, right? Do we see and, and understand who our neighbors are? Like Tim was talking about how things are maybe different in different parts of Canada, but still that intercultural stuff, if we're blind... We just think all our neighbors are like us and we don't see neighbors who are maybe different, right? Or even in the church, our congregation has a way of doing things and we don't recognize that some of the people that are worshiping there that might find it foreign or, you know, might have something to bring. And so loving our neighbor is being curious about our neighbor. And bring it back to Bill to even your conversation about the gospel message, right? Say, you know, it's, it's funny that even, even the simplest gospel Jesus parables and messages really do lean into this. The Good Samaritan, right? It's not just about being nice to people. The Samaritan was not guilty of harming this person on the road. They didn't do it. You know, they, they could have just carried on. And all the, the previous righteous people carried on because they it wasn't their fault that it happened. But, you know, in, in some of our training and discussion today, we kind of touch on the bullying conversation. So in bullying, we talk about, you know, the bully, the victim, but then we talk about the bystander. Right. And the bystander, if the bystander does nothing or says nothing, they're complicit in a system or an environment that continues to allow people to be victimized. And so, you know, the Good Samaritan could have been just a bystander and say, well, not my problem. I didn't do it. Not my, you know, I'm a good person. You know, I'm, so I'm just going to keep going. But to him, it was like, no, I see somebody suffering. I see a community suffering. And so, how do I do what I can? You know, I don't have to adopt them to my family, but I, at the very least, I need to address the fact that this person is is hurting and broken on the side of the road. And so that's such a simple story, but comes back to, well, if we know that there's an entire community in Canada 
that is hurting, how can we not, how can we not care? You know, how can we not do something or, or want to do something about it? Yeah, thank you. This has been such a rich conversation. I'm, I'm really glad we went somewhere different than I thought we would. As you, um, in your last year of thinking and reflecting on, on this and in your work at the uh, Tim Center, is there one book or one podcast or one thing, one resource that you would suggest for people who might want to go deeper in this conversation? That, that is the toughest question. Um, <laughs> you, can, I, you can give more than that. I can't. Well, I mean, I can't even, I have a hard time answering because without knowing who it is, right? And where they are and what their story is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, w- I want to be all cheesy and say the Bible, although maybe that, I shouldn't say that it's cheesy. But, but, you know, I think, you know, the more we understand the biblical text in the way it was meant to, like, this is where, the, again, the discipleship comes into, like, understanding that, you know, Jesus didn't speak in New King James. Nothing wrong with New King James, but he didn't speak in New King James. And, you know, when we understand the culture that he grew up in, we understand, you know, or if we understand the Greek language, I mean, you know, not that everyone has time to, to do biblical studies, but the more we lean into that, we realize, oh, it's different when we talk about Greek, not just as a language, but as a culture. And then Hebrew in the Old Testament, like there's there's a distinct cross-cultural conversation that needs to happen there that we often just think is, oh, it's just a language thing. It's like, no, it's more than a language. There's weight to that. And I think as we do that, then we realize, oh, you know, one of our preachers at on Pentecost Sunday preached about Pentecost, not just about acquiring other languages, but Pentecost was protest. It was protest to say that, no, we're not going to assimilate into the Greco-Roman Empire. We're going to identify with people's language and therefore identify with the culture that that represents. And so I just loved, so I'll bring everybody back to the Bible. There's great resources out there, but it depends on where you are. The conversation becomes very nuanced around growing cross-culturally, interculturally, and multiculturally. And the Bible is what we have in common. I was going to say, your, your example of the Good Samaritan is exactly like that because there's a cultural piece there, right? The difference between Samaritans and Jews, right? Yeah. And so if we can reflect on that, that's powerful in itself. Tim, thank you so, so much. I think this has uh, been super helpful and very challenging and rich. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.